We're here at Do It Day 2017. The goal this year is to destigmatize mental health. And here in the United States, we're very proud to be working with Mental Health America. Please introduce yourself to everybody out there. I'm Paul Gianfrido, and I'm the president and CEO of Mental Health America. Now, I want to go over this brief because every challenge that we get, we receive a brief. And I said this to you earlier, and and this is the truth. This is one of the best briefs I've seen because it's not overwhelming, but it's dense at the same time. So let's, let's start, number one, a little bit of an overview of Mental Health America, and then let's talk about the challenge that okay. you gave to the teams here at McCann. Well, Mental Health America is almost 110 years old. We're the oldest mental health advocacy organization in the United States and one of the oldest modern mental health advocacy organizations in the world. We stand for prevention for all, for early identification and intervention for those at risk, for integrated health, behavioral health, and other services for those who need them, with recovery as the goal. And we come at this from the perspective of people with lived experience, people who themselves, like our founder, Clifford Beers, have had mental health concerns or mental illnesses during their lives. You talked a little bit during your presentation to the teams in McCann. You were, you were very personal about it. I mean, I think we both were, actually. So, you know, I shared some of my experiences with depression when I was in my 20s. And, and you shared stories about your family that, that I think the, the narrative a lot of the time with mental health, at least in the United States, is it's swept under the rug. People don't necessarily talk about it. It's just, it's, you know, it's like, um, I, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable. You made it analogous to, you know, cancer people are, you know, running marathons and this, that, and the other thing, which is great. And that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not diluting the importance of that. But the story that you told was very interesting. And I'd, I'd like you to share that a little bit because I think it really helps put, put things in relief. Um, sure. And, and the, the problem that we have is that for mental illnesses, we've applied a behavioral standard as opposed to a clinical standard as a trigger to treatment. So as a matter of public policy, we've used this danger to self or other standard. And by using that standard, we've made mental illnesses the only chronic diseases in America uh, that as a matter of public policy, we treat, um, we wait till stage four to treat and often inappropriately through incarceration. We don't do that with cancer. And my daughter, who's 31 years old, um, has metastatic breast cancer. She was diagnosed about a year and a half ago with it. And people have really rallied around her to support her because they understand that she's not a danger to anyone. She's not a danger to herself, not a danger to anybody else. And in fact, she's a strong and uh, persuasive advocate for more research for breast cancer. Uh, and for more services and supports for people with breast cancer. My son, Tim, on the other hand, he's 32 years old, and he's had schizophrenia since he was five. Nobody's ever rallied around him the same way because they think of him as being immediately dangerous to himself or to other people, and they, they think about being afraid of him or being afraid of what he's got when they think about either him or about his schizophrenia. And yet, Timothy and Larissa are going through very many of the same things and have a tremendous amount of empathy uh, for each other and sympathy toward each other's plights. You said persuasive. And there's obviously a persuasive argument for screening and treatment for mental health. What are the barriers? I mean, you've, you've talked a little bit about some of the barriers that we have currently. What are some of the other barriers that need to be overcome? 
because I think you and I discussed this earlier. It's like once, once you break down even just one barrier as it relates to mental health, people can be much more welcoming. They can be much more open, similar to what you would see with cancer, what you would see with, with ALS. Um, what, what else do we have to break down here? Well, because these are big and scary words that we use to describe mental illnesses like psychosis and like schizophrenia, even multiple words like borderline personality disorder, uh, we tend to be afraid of them. So we have to break down some of the fear about the terms that we use uh, to describe uh, mental illnesses. But I think we also have to cut away the fear that people have uh, about their kids being labeled. Half of mm -hmm. mental illnesses emerge by the age of 14. A lot of parents look at that, a lot of teachers, a lot of clinicians look at that and all say, well, I don't wanna label that kid as having this particular uh, mental illness. Uh, what happens though is they end up getting labeled anyway. They just get inappropriately labeled as, a, right. as having bad behavior or being a bad kid. And what you really want is an accurate diagnosis, because if you get an accurate diagnosis, you can get really good treatment for it. And nowadays, we actually have very good treatments for early stage mm -hmm. mental illnesses that can really move people along pathways to recovery. Maybe not cures, but at least recovery. Talk about the differences from years ago to now. Because again, what we're working on here with Do It Day is to establish an opportunity to amplify an important message. But I think it's important to understand how far we've come. Because again, education is nine-tenths of the battle sometimes. And I don't think people understand how far we have come, even exponentially within maybe the last five to 10 years. Yeah, uh, you know, well, 100 years ago, right, we moved people into institutions and locked the doors and we never saw them again. And that began when they were young people, when they were kids, and, and certainly a lot of young adults. And we kind of worked past that in the 1950s and 1960s when we began to develop medications and talk therapies that were effective. Uh, but then we made some mistakes. I was a policymaker, a state policymaker in the 1980s, and we made some mistakes then because while we began to close our state hospitals, I often say that we didn't just deinstitutionalize our population, we reinstitutionalized it. We didn't set up enough community-based services and supports for children or adults as a result we opened up a lot more jails, and all we did was replace one kind of a locked ward with another kind of a locked ward. We just closed down the things we called state hospitals, and we opened up things called county jails and state prisons. Where we've come in the last few years is finally to begin to catch up with physical health conditions and to, to catch up with the way we think about intellectual or developmental disabilities, to understand that our kids are all entitled to be living in the mainstream of society, to be educated in the mainstream mm -hmm. of society. We've been doing that with increasing frequency with kids with serious mental illnesses as well. And policymakers, I think, have begun to accept the challenge of trying to rebuild now this community-based mental health system that John Kennedy promised us in 1963. <laughs> That's right. And, and, uh, and people who aren't familiar, explain that a little bit in a nutshell, because that, that's an important turning well, point. The very last bill that John Kennedy signed into law was the Community Mental Health Centers Act before he was assassinated. And that was critically important at the time. It not only included uh, developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, but also included mental illnesses and, and people with mental illnesses and promised 
uh, community-based services and supports for them. What happened was when the 1980s came along, we got the philosophy of new federalism uh, during the Reagan years, and a lot of the funding for the community mental health centers disappeared, and we were just beginning to build that system. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing is that the very last bill that President Obama signed uh, before leaving office was the 21st Century Cures Act. And a substantial portion of that legislation is the most comprehensive mental health reform legislation that goes back to the roots of beginning to build a foundation, an infrastructure for community-based mental health services that begin during childhood. But it took us 50 years to get back to where we were in 1963. And it hopefully won't take us another 50 years to put the next building block on that foundation. How does that get accelerated? Because there is the the government, which, depending on how you look at it, can be helpful or not helpful. And again, you're going federal, state, local, community. You potentially have this brand community that has money that could potentially accelerate any sort of progress in this area. I mean, I think today the spirit of what we're trying to do is come up with an idea, November 16th, executing on that idea, but also what are the long tail ramifications for that? I mean, where do you see because funding's a part of this. Funding's definitely a part of this. Where do you see the government coming in? Where do you see private coming in? You know, public and private. How do you see that? To, because we don't want to wait 50 years. That's right. Where do you see it being most effective and why? Well, we've got to make better investments if you want to look at it from that perspective, or we've got to save money if you want to look at it from a different perspective. Either one, if you act before stage four, you'll be making a better investment and or you'll be saving money. Right now, practically all of the public dollars and so many of the private dollars are in post, what I call post-crisis stage four intervention. We wait till somebody gets really sick and then we put them into the hospital or we put them into a jail and we spend a lot of money on that and then we barely can amass the kinds of services they need to get them into supported housing if we can do that. Very expensive for us to do that. Supported employment, very expensive for us to do that. If we just take a deep breath and look before stage four, then you begin to discover ways that we can get a lot more bang for the buck, that we can do a lot right. more and, and with a lot better investment, with a lot fewer dollars that promote a lot more independence and productive citizens. Where do, you think, where do you think technology can be a help or a hindrance? Technology is how we reach everybody these days. Uh, so it's a big, big help in that, you know, through social media, I can reach a lot of people. Mental sure. Health America has almost 400,000 followers on Facebook and Twitter alone, and that's growing significantly. Um, technology can help create new communities of people. We don't have to have people living next door to people sure. anymore to be existing next door. So... There's so much promise from the use of technology, but technology is a big Wild West show to a great extent, too. And the other thing I wanted to point out is, is you take like a platform like Instagram, and it's nothing but apple teenies, puppies, and you know happy days. But it's interesting because sometimes behind that is somebody who's not okay. That's right. And, so it's, and I don't know where I'm going with this, but it occurred to me that we try to put together this perfect life and we're imperfect beings. So yes, great enabler of the message, great enabler of helping with tools, 
But are you at all concerned that sometimes we, as for our own mental health, sometimes we just toss things out and maybe it's like, mm, maybe it's not that perfect? Well, I, I think that there's no question that it's, it's not that perfect. Again, the, the bigger worry for me is that in an, in an unregulated environment right. um, that you don't know what messages are getting through to people. So, but what we need to do is recognize there are messages getting through to people. I used to say when I was a policymaker that, you know, the fact of the matter was we were trying to make good policy. The reason why we listened to lobbyists so often, as opposed to like regular people, was because they were the only people providing the information to us. Ah. So if in technology, all people are getting is bad information from people that, you know, have an, a, a reason to give them that to make money off it or to, to try then I, I don't want to accept that. What I want to do is get in there and have just as good, make just as much noise as they do with an effective campaign right. that reaches people so that they listen to my message too and maybe filter out some of those others that aren't as good. See, that was like a perfect broadcast segue into <laughs> where we are today. So uh, as we are talking... I'm, and I'm good at staying on message. No, this is great. Yeah. No, you've been trained extraordinarily <laughs> well, but I also think you're natural. Um, so we're in the middle of, of the hack part of Do It Day today. So what have you seen that has been promising in terms of the teams, what they've been putting together? What, what have you appreciated most? I've appreciated the fact that they've immediately gone to an understanding that mental illnesses are childhood diseases. And, you know, some of them are looking to focus primarily on kids themselves and the messaging to young people. We can't be afraid of that. You know, we have our online screening program and the largest cohort of screeners, a third of them, like a thousand people a day for us are 11 to 17 year olds. So you can't be afraid to deliver messages to 11 year olds and 12 wow. year olds. They're the ones who are experiencing the first signs and symptoms of mental illnesses anyway, because half of them emerge by the age of 14. Um, so some of them are focused right there. Some are focused on the adults who influence the lives of children. So they're talking about, well, maybe I message young people this way, but maybe I message their parents and their teachers and clinicians a different way. Others have said, let's take a look at policymakers and, and thought leaders, and, and let's think about whether or not we can influence them. Now, I don't know what's going to come out of all of this, right. but I think they've done a really good job of segmenting the market right now and understanding that there are different kinds of messages that would need to be heard by each of these different kinds of audiences. It can't be broad. It can't be broad-based. You can't. One size is not going to fit everybody in this. Not only because we have so many different kinds of conditions that fit under the umbrella of mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. But again, there are just too many different audiences or markets from my perspective that have to be reached. And I'm gonna be looking forward to seeing after they've gone through all of this and thought about them, which one did they pick? Right. Or which ones did they pick? And then what's the plan for reaching that group? Based on what you know today and where we may be a year from now, what is your hope? What What is your hope? Because I know that there's We've got haven't gotten to the execution of the idea, nor the idea itself yet. But in your mind, what's a great end game a year from now? I think that if we've got more people thinking earlier intervention, that's before stage four. We've got more people thinking about mental health conditions as health not conditions, not public safety crises, and thinking about them the same way we think about other chronic diseases. There's my end game because I know this wave is coming. Uh, one of the things I've talked with some folks about today is the fact that NIMH, which is funding a lot of the research around mental illness, mm -hmm. loves our before stage four messaging. Um, and they've acknowledged we thought of it first, 
but it's the research is moving in that direction. We're moving in the direction through uh, research in science of staging mental illnesses the same way cancers are staged and kidney disease is staged, starting with psychosis and moving on to others. And so I think this wave is coming, and I think this is one of these rare instances where the advocacy world is three to five years ahead of the scientists and the researchers. So a year from now, if we've begun to lay this foundation, I can only imagine we will then be three years from now and five years from now when all the science catches up with us mm-hmm. and everybody's talking stages of mental illness. Connecting the dots. All these dots are going to be connected. It's all going to bring people back to the earliest possible interventions and identification. We'll stop being afraid of identifying psychosis, for example, in a five-year-old like my son had, when we're all confident that we can treat psychosis and we can measure psychosis in a five-year-old and then move them on a pathway to recovery, which we can also measure at that point. And all that's coming. You can see what our teams came up with at thedrum.com. You can search Do It Day. Paul, thank you so much. We have much more to go. So we're just, we're just discussing kind of midstream uh, what your thoughts are at this point, and then people can catch up with the, uh, with the content on the site at thedrum.com. But thank you very much for your partnership and looking forward to seeing what's next. Thanks, and thanks for taking this on this year.